uh, this is going to be more of a sort of thematic talk than specifically looking at one passage, but there's one passage in Romans 13 that I want to focus on as we look at uh, politics this morning. And I hope that as we look at this and a few other places in the Bible, we'll be greatly helped. Uh, If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1140. I'm just going to read seven verses of chapter 13. Paul writes to the Roman church and says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoing. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Should we pray for God's help as we look at this passage and others together? (coughs) Loving fathers, we are a few days away now from the election and wanting to know how we can be God-honouring in our attitude towards it and those in authority over us. I pray that by your spirit you would help us It's a difficult subject, it's a very complicated subject, so please help me to explain what I can clearly, and please help our hearts if we're naturally um, not positive about politicians, if we're not naturally positive about authority. Please challenge us and humble us, and help us to see how we can play our part in building your kingdom, here on earth as in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, At one level, laughing at politicians and having a joke, have I got news for you, that kind of thing, it's kind of appropriate, and if you're going to be a politician, it's going to happen. It's kind of par for the course. But at a much more serious level, that kind of stuff is often the attitude we have towards politics, politicians, and all we ever do is criticise or laugh at. And although there may be a place for that, I really want to challenge us this morning to think seriously about how we engage with politics and the political world, because God would want us to do that. I guess for most of us, we're one of three places. Perhaps we're very distracted by just life and we're sort of thinking, flip, I didn't know that the general election is only 10 days away. Perhaps we're very disengaged. Um, Maybe we don't really understand politics, it's not our thing. Maybe you feel very let down by politicians who say one thing and seem to do another. Maybe you think there's not really a particularly inspiring character that really grabs my heart. I don't really want to vote for anyone. Um, I would just challenge you if you're very disengaged. Um, Though we live in a democratic society that is flawed in many ways, we are hugely privileged. Um, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but bits of Africa that I have worked in, I've been in Africa on two or three occasions when the elections are taking place. And when you've been in that environment, you realize how privileged we are. 
to live in a democratic society, even though it's flawed. And so I just challenge you to not be disengaged because we have a responsibility to be involved. So distracted, disengaged, or perhaps you just say, I just don't care. Um, what good could I even make? What's the point in voting because my vote won't count? Uh, but I want to challenge that as well. Um, in terms of engagement, voting isn't necessarily engaging. Voting plays to consumerism. Uh, I can just go tick a box and say, well, I've done my bit. And though we should all vote, and it's important to do it, engaging with these issues isn't just about ticking a box. And I want to challenge us to think, so how do I engage, even if politics isn't my thing, even if I don't naturally want to? Because as we often think, if this is God's world and God is the ruler over his world, then he cares about all of it. And he cares about those who he has placed in authority over us. And he cares about the way that we seek to respect and support and pray for them. Uh, so distracted, disengaged, don't care. Different options. Uh, by the way, I did do a little handout. I don't often do this, but it's on your chairs. Just simply because it was a bit of a minefield for me trying to figure out what to say, what not to say. And I put these things down just to give you a chance perhaps to go home and reflect. Um, so if you find it helpful, you can follow things on there. Uh, but that's more a resource to take away. And there's a few other scriptures on that that you can use to help inform your thinking that I won't refer to here just for the sake of time. But that's for you if it will help you. Um, but we've really got four options when it comes to engaging with the political world. One is just to withdraw, kind of wait in a little holy huddle, hide in church, because the world out there is just so anti-God and we don't want to be involved. So we'll just wait and one day God will take us to be in heaven. Um, I suggest that that is not honouring to God. One would be to sort of capitulate, just give up and say, well, what good can I ever do? Um, I'm just going to accommodate myself to the way things are going. Uh, you see the changes in, for instance, the marriage laws recently. Um, it would be easy just to say, well, this is obviously the direction of travel that we're going in as a country. There's not much we can do, so let's just go with it and work with it, rather than to stand on what God has said. Uh, don't capitulate. The other one is just to sort of go tribal. Uh, we end up becoming so concerned with ourselves, and it's all just about getting our way and shouting very loudly and not seeking to pray for and work with those in authority, but just to simply shout at them and tell them all the mistakes they're making and how godless they are. Again, I don't think that is very honouring to God. The fourth option, really, is to engage. Uh, to look and think, how can I be a good citizen for the common good, but in a way that will honour God? And so that, if that's the case, it's not so much whether I'm involved, but how. And how we're involved, of course, will be different for different people. We've all got different temperaments. We've got different opportunities to be involved. But we do need to ask ourselves, how can I, as a Christian believer, be passionate about something that God is passionate about? Add into all that mix, the sort of increasingly complex world we live in. I think uh, in the past there was probably a stronger moral consensus than there is today. Uh, I think those who are a bit older in here would probably say that. It's not that we've completely landslipped and there weren't issues before, but there tended to be a greater awareness of God, more of an understanding of God's word historically than there is today. And I think we're living not just in an immoral world, a world that does things that are godless, but an increasingly amoral world where there's almost no such thing, people say, as morality, and just do what is good for you, this relative world we live in. Um, so it's a challenge, but, and I'll end on this, be encouraged, even in all the mess, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is in complete control. Uh, when I turn on the 10 o'clock news, sometimes it's hard to believe that, but it is true, and so we need to keep trusting that he is Lord. So we're going to just look, for start with, it's a sort of biblical foundations for engaging with uh, the political world, because it's really important. And the first thing I want to make the point from, uh, and if you look at Romans chapter 13, this is where it mostly comes from, is for us to realise that authority is good. Authority is good. 
Uh, if you've got Romans 13 now, I've touched on this uh, before. Um, it's a really key chapter or chapter and a bit in the Bible. And that's why we often come to it. But if you know Romans, Paul writes this letter to the Roman church. You've got tw- uh, 11 chapters of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus Christ is, that he entered time and space, got involved in our mess and came and died in our place that we can be forgiven and know new life by his spirit. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's what chapters 1 to 11 unpack. And I've said then before, chapter 12 is like a turning point in Romans, which then says, okay, if that is true, what difference will it make in my life in really practical ways? And chapters 12 to 16 do that. Uh, Paul begins chapter 12, and remember he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect will. And then he also talks about giving our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he lays down the cards early. He says, worship is giving all of your life to honor God. And that means that our involvement with authority and our involvement with the political world is part of that. And God is just as interested in how you relate to authorities in your life as he is when you join the band and sing in church. Because all of life is worship. And that's why this is a really important subject. And I think what Paul goes on to say after chapter 12 in chapter 13 is says one of the best ways to show that you've understood the gospel is through the way that you relate to authority. And that's what chapter 13 is all about. When you think of authority, cast your mind back to when you were at school. Can you remember some of your teachers? Um, Some had great authority, some didn't. Uh, I had a DT teacher. I don't even remember his real name, but we called him Shredder. Um, It wasn't particularly honouring. He had no authority over us. We caused absolute mayhem. And it was the DT lab. Uh, James, you'd appreciate this, being a DT teacher. Uh, Tools everywhere, machines everywhere, and we just had great fun. Let's just say that. We didn't respect him. It wasn't right. We were growing up. We had to learn. But we didn't respect Shredder. He didn't have much authority. The other end of the spectrum at school was my Latin teacher, Mr. Hooper. I'll never forget his name. He had a metal ruler. He didn't use the metal ruler because that was illegal by the time I was a child, but he did use it on the table right next to our hand. And he might as well have used it on us because it was really scary. Um, I had Latin drilled into me. I didn't learn anything, but it was drilled into me by Mr. Hooper. He was an authority that I was genuinely scared of. So we've got Shredder down here, no respect. Mr. Hooper, terrified of. The man I really respected was my headmaster because he just had a really even keel. He had a quiet authority about him and a sense of humor And he loved people. He was a good authority. But as you think of your own school teachers, you'll know the good authorities, the bad authorities. And perhaps that in some ways has shaped the way that you respond to authority today. But look at what Paul says in verse 1, chapter 13. Notice the command. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Do you notice too who that command is for? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That presents a challenge to us, doesn't it? When I want to be above the law, when I don't want to listen to those in authority because I know better. There's a real challenge here. But where does Paul say that authority comes from? Do you see it in there? He says it's a derived authority. It's an authority that God has given. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That means that when we ignore authority in the world, we're actually rebelling against God. That's quite challenging, isn't it? But that's what Paul says. 
Notice as well, look at verses 2 to 7. What's the purpose of authority? Do you notice it's not about hierarchy. It's not about power. It's about serving. That's very true in the church as well. Authority or leadership in a church. It's not about power. It's not about hierarchy. It's about serving. And notice what Paul says, verse 4. The authorities that he has placed in the world are God's servant to do good. And I think in your notes there's a few other passages that you can follow through on that. God's authority that God institutes is there to serve people for the common good. And you saw back in chapter 12, uh, Paul was talking about somehow in the gift of governance and he challenged those people to govern diligently. And in chapter 12, verse 16, he spoke of the need to have humility. And what he's really getting at is he's saying all authority ultimately is meant to reflect the ultimate authority of God. God rules by serving and that's how all authorities should. But as you're sort of following my train of thought, there's a big problem, isn't there? It's pretty obvious. What do I do when the authorities are not good authorities? What do I do when their leadership isn't serving? It's self-serving. What do I do when I don't trust them? What do I do when I don't want to follow them? And of course, that's where you get all the jokes about the politicians. I think there's one coming up here. These sort of things are quite fun at one level, the private eye. Uh, I love that one, Boris's expression there. And we can joke about politicians, there's another one here. I find the nature notes particularly funny. Uh, I like the one about caricaturing David Cameron there as jellyfish, drifts with the tide of public opinion, no backbone. Uh, they're a bit of fun, but at a different level, they're quite serious because often if all we do is laugh at politicians and complain about politicians, it's not necessarily God-honoring because even in their flawed nature, politicians are there to serve us. And that's what Romans chapter 13 challenges us with. Should we just knock that off, John? Otherwise we'll be staring at it for too long. Um, There are lots of those online if you find Nature Notes hilarious. But remember this, when you're challenged to say, I don't want to respond to authority, just think about the context when Paul wrote this letter. He wrote to the church in Rome. Who was the authority? The Romans. They were pagan. They were godless. People worshipped the emperor. And yet he still saw a place to challenge the church to submit to the authority of Rome at a level that is appropriate. And that presents us with a real challenge. How are we going to respond to authority? Another example, think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is there when the people of God, Israel, are exiled into Babylon. He's there in Jerusalem crying and weeping by the river when he sees God's people taken away and the city destroyed. He goes off into exile. And what is the command that comes to God's people through Jeremiah? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. He's not talking about Jerusalem because it's been destroyed. He's talking about this foreign nation that they are now sitting under. So there seems to be something in Scripture about the ability that God has in his sovereignty of using people who don't know him to still serve him. Um, If you struggle with that, and I think a lot of people do, one of the things you need to get your head around is um, something called common grace. It's this idea in Scripture that God blesses, at some level, everyone whether they know him or not. Everyone in the world has some experience of the goodness of God. Um, Because it's quite complicated, because I don't want to sort of park ourselves on it too long, I've done a sort of one-pager on common grace, because it's quite complex, but really, really important. It's at the door. And if you want to follow this through and think, what does that mean then? Um, You can take that home. A bit of homework this week. Um, If you're in my discipleship group, that's a double homework for you. You've not been naughty. Um, It's just occasionally good to make people work hard. But common grace is really important. And if you grasp that... 
it will help you to see how can I submit to authority and how can God use authority that isn't submitted to him for his purposes, if that makes sense. So the first thing is God, God's authority is a good thing. And that is very challenging for us. The second thing, though, that we have learned in our passage is that God is the ultimate authority. Do you remember chapter 13, verse 3? Authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, John, if you just flick through, there's a great verse in the book of Colossians. Um, is that going to come up? It might come up in a second. It talks about Jesus being the authority, all things. Here we go. For in him all things were created. This is Jesus. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That in part is saying that the authorities which God has put in place are there to serve Jesus, and they can in his sovereignty. It's a great verse that reminds us that Jesus is Lord. Of course that means, and we'll come to this, as Christian believers we're not ultimately answerable to the states because Jesus Christ is Lord, but we are to be good citizens which means that the state does have authority over us up until the point when our faith in Jesus Christ and his ultimate um, lordship is compromised. Of course, just because Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that people will not try and challenge that lordship. So, you know the verses in Psalm 2? The writer says, Why do the nations conspire the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. See, there will be authorities that rebel against the ultimate authority of God, and it may be that the authorities that God places over us play a part in that. And that's why we need to remember all the time that Jesus is still Lord. He's still Lord, even in countries where governments are completely oppressive and where it's illegal to be a Christian. He's still Lord. Remember the words in Philippians, I think uh, they were read earlier in the service as we were singing. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that gives us great hope, doesn't it? That in a world where there's so much godless leadership, one day God will put things right. So I just want you to remember two things, if there's a lot there. Authority is good. God is the ultimate authority. But what I really want to focus on is this idea of being a Christian carrying responsibility. What responsibilities do you carry? Uh, Do you know Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Some people use that to kind of suggest that this world doesn't matter to God. And all that really matters is the world to come. But I would like to challenge that and say I don't think that's understanding what Jesus is saying. I was talking to a friend this week who said one of their favorite passages in the Bible is that one in Revelation where we're told, I will make all things new. Now there are two words in the original language for new. One is speaking about chronologically new, like replacement, and one is talking about a change or renewal of character. And in Revelation, where we're we're told, I will make all things new, it's not the word about replacement, a complete and utter change. It's talking about a renewal, a remaking of a broken world, restored to all that it was and even better. That's interesting because that means that this world does matter to God. Uh, Do you remember when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray? And he prays to the Father saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
It doesn't say your will be done in heaven, but not on earth. And all that means is that this world does matter to God. If it's a created order and we're made in the image of God, then you and I have a responsibility towards this world. Yes, we one day will be in heaven, a remade world that's different, but there will be lots of continuities with this world and all the good things will continue and be even better. But all the things that are wrong will be taken away. And it's for that reason that Jesus is able to challenge us that this world does matter to God, even though we're preparing for the world to come. Now, please don't mishear this. I'm not saying that peace with man is the same as peace with God. I'm not saying that sort of political liberation is the same as salvation. It's not saying that social action is evangelism. They're different things. But we don't want to sort of have a pendulum swing between one and the other. And that's why we need to engage with our world. Think of the words of Jesus. uh, You are the salt of the earth. We're challenged to be salt and light. What did Jesus say? Um, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and give glory to your God in heaven. Uh, You'll know that passage in Matthew chapter 13 of the yeast and the dough. A little yeast works its way through all the dough. It's a challenge that as a church we are meant to have and make a difference in God's world. But of course you have to live with attention, don't you? We're living in this world and we know it's not all there is. We know one day we'll be with God in all of eternity and the world will be remade. But it doesn't mean this world does not matter. And we've got to remember too that the gospel, the proclaimed word of God, is heard in a context. Which means that we need to be out there as a church. We need to be visible. It's not just about the gathered church here. It's about what happens after we're here and we're sent out to serve. So the challenge there is we want to engage in God's world. The question then is, how does the ultimate lordship of Jesus impact the way that we engage? Now, if you're a cynic, you're perhaps still saying, I get all that, but still, what is the point? Because I can't have any influence. Just uh, cast your mind back to the Old Testament. Here are three examples of people working in godless environments where God and his sovereignty used their faithfulness for his good. Think of Joseph, sold into slavery in Egypt, abandoned by his brothers. What happened? Under God's lead, he became prime minister of Egypt. Huge influence in a godless nation. And God used him. And there's that beautiful line at the end of chapter 50 in Genesis. What man meant for evil, God turned around for good. Brilliant verse. Um, Think of Daniel in Babylon. Remember Daniel, he became very influential. He had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He was loyal to the state, but here's the point, only to the point where it led him to not want to compromise his primary loyalty to Christ, to God. So remember what he says in Daniel chapter 3, him and his uh, friends defiantly said, if we're thrown into the fiery furnace, the God who we serve will save us. We will not worship your gods or serve the image of gold you've set up. Being in the world, sitting under the authority, but not ultimately, um, but not ever compromising an ultimate loyalty to Jesus Christ and that's where the tension exists and you have to work that through in your own mind but it's a very real one I think too of Esther she goes before Xerxes the Persian king now to go before a king uninvited would sentence you to death but she saw that the whole of the Jewish people were about to be sort of ethnically cleansed and wiped out so she went before Xerxes and pleaded that this would not happen and what does she say I will go to the king though it's against the law And if I perish, I perish. A complete and utter trust in the sovereignty of God. 
So can you see the sort of tension working out in there? That here are people who are faithful to God in a godless nation, but God's still able to use them. Well, how do we pull all this together? Um, I just want to give you some practical examples of how we can engage uh, with authority, particularly with the election. And the first one, it may be very obvious. I challenge myself with this and I challenge you with it. We need to be a church that prays for authority and leadership over us and doesn't just criticize it. Uh, There's a verse from Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases our God, our Saviour. I just challenge you, if you struggle with the politicians, if you're struggling with how to vote, spend some time this week praying for our leaders. Pray for their conversion, of course, but pray too that in God's sovereignty, he would, by common grace, use them to bring about his purposes in the world. Let's pray for our leaders, not just criticise them. Um, Can you just knock that off? Thanks. Second one, um, this again is obvious. Um, I challenge you, just do something. Do something. There was an 18th century um, Irish statesman called Edmund Burke, and he said... All it takes for evil to prosper is good men to do nothing. And of course we can say, what's the point? My influence will be so tiny and negligible, what's the point? But of course if we all say that, the Christian church will have no influence at all. Um, Apparently this is attributed to Joseph Stalin, who's not a good example of leadership. But I think what he says is true. History is made by those who show up. Now, of course, the legacy he left was not a positive one, but the challenge to us is, will we show up and leave a positive legacy? Pray for our leaders, don't criticise them. Do something. Perhaps that means writing to an MP. Perhaps that means lobbying government. Perhaps that just means building a really genuine relationship with political figures in our community. Getting to know them, not just criticise them. Share life with them. Show an interest in what they're doing and their policies. Suggest your own. Because you look at the examples of particularly Joseph in Egypt, through kind of patient, humble, listening engagement with the authorities, God was able to use him. I wonder how many of us even know our local politicians, whether we've ever spent any time with them, whether we've ever written to encourage them. That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? Uh, Pray, don't criticise, do something. Uh, I think work together. You know, I'm really excited about our team that Simon Howard's leading, engaging with the community. Uh, not because I've kind of lost the plot and it's all about social action. And if you hear me in elders meetings, you know that proclaiming the gospel is a priority. But, as I said, the gospel is heard in a context. And I'm really excited about us as a church building the kind of footprint that we have in the community. So that we're not just in here, but we're out there serving people, loving people. Loving our community, seeking the peace and prosperity of the city, as Jeremiah was instructed to do. And tons of churches do this really well. Um, Christians Against Poverty, debt counselling, food banks, um, conservation projects, homeless shelters. These things don't become a replacement for proclaiming the word, teaching people that they're lost without Jesus Christ. Of course not. But they're important nonetheless, because they're showing our communities that we care. And they shows our communities that we care about God's world. So as we do that, perhaps the challenge is be proactive, not reactive. I think as Christians, and particularly the church, often we just react to the latest thing that the government says. Why don't we get on the front foot and be proactive? Let's start setting a vision for our country of what it would mean to have God at the centre. 
true relationships, community, all the things that our world is screaming for and the gospel offers. And finally, be positive. Uh, Anytime I sort of read of Christian involvement in politics, it tends to be outlining all the things that as Christians we're against. And rightly so, because we need to speak out against things that are wrong. But we don't read so much about what Christians are for. And I think it would be a really good thing to get on the front foot and to cast a vision that will be positive for the future. Just on that, um, the uh, Dutch Prime Minister, Abraham Kuyper, when he died in 1920, he was a Christian, he was a good leader, and I think he was a good thinker. And I, I read this this week, which I think is really helpful. He distinguished um, between what he called church institutional and church organic. It's a bit simpler than it sounds. What he means is, church institution, in his mind, is the gathered church. When we come together in church, and what is our focus? It's on worship, it's on the word of God applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. It's about the Lord's Supper, about baptism, about evangelism and discipleship. That is what the church institutional is. But he says that is different to church organic, which is more about the way that you use your gifts and are built up in here to go out there and serve. And one of the main purposes of gathering on a Sunday isn't just to gather, but to prepare us to serve God out there. And I'm really passionate about that because God's not just interested in what goes on in here. He's interested in the way that you work. He's interested in the influence that you can have in the secular workplace, in our communities. And we need to use our time here in part to prepare us for the majority of our time out there. And that's the distinction he's trying to make. I think it was Martin Luther King, an American statesman. He said, the church must be reminded it's not the master of the state, nor is it the servant of the state, but it is the conscience of the state. And I really believe that as Christians, if we pull together and work with our leaders, we can have a much more profound difference in our country than perhaps we do at the moment. <coughs> now, on the back of your handout, um, I put some sort of reading. There's, there's um, so many things that uh, you may want to follow up on this. And this is all kind of new to you, and you're thinking, you know, I'd love to think this through. Um, those organizations and websites I put there, in different ways, they're all helpful. And uh, just flick through some of these ones you'll find a lot of really helpful articles written by thoughtful Christians who are seeking to engage in this stuff. Um, And I really commend many of them to you. Most of those are sort of written at kind of popular level, accessible for most of us here, and uh, they're really helpful. There's also some books down there if you want to sort of think this through. Um, uh, The first three particularly are dealing with kind of uh, the election. Um, The bottom three are a bit more in-depth. One uh, I really recommend everyone reads is one by Tim Keller called The Gospel and All of Life. And it's really getting at how does the Christian gospel impact all the different areas of my life. And if you've never thought about that before, it's a really good little book. There is a DVD course that goes with it. um, But I really recommend that to you. And if you're a good reader and uh, you really like some stretch, then pick up Tim Keller's other book, Centre Church. It's pretty hard work. um, But he really engages with culture and how the Christian faith interacts with the state and authority. Um, if you're not um, an experienced reader, don't read very much, you probably find it a little bit over your head. But those of you who read a lot would find that really stimulating. Again, it's a really helpful book, and then the bottom one will push you a bit more still. They're just different things that if you want to follow some of this up, you could. But I just want to end with this. There's a lot there, because it's a complicated subject, I know that. But just, if that sort of scrambled your mind, let's just go away with a few kind of headlines, which will help us. First one... Remember that authority is good. And authority has been placed there by God. Second one, remember that Jesus is the ultimate authority. 
And that gives us hope when we want to despair. Remember, the gospel impacts all of life. That chapter 13 comes after chapters 1 to 12. So perhaps spend some time this week thinking, how does my faith in Jesus and the fact that I believe that he's Lord impact the way that I engage with his world? And I really want to commend to us as a church, let's love our world and let's be passionate about what God is passionate. Of course, all the time looking forward to the day when he will make all things new.